Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. And today's guest is National Hockey League Hall of Famer, Mark Messier. And to be honest, this man hardly needs an introduction. I mean, think about this. He won six Stanley Cups and is one of the NHL's all-time leading goal scorers. He's an absolute legend in the game. And he's widely regarded as one of the best leaders, not only in hockey, but in all sports. He's known as being the captain because he knows how to lead. And I can't tell you, I am so excited for you to get a glimpse into this guy's leadership style. I want you to see the incredible awareness he has for the people around him. I never even played hockey. I have no idea how to even score a goal, but I do know this, you can't win all those Stanley Cups alone. And Mark's team succeeded so often because he was always tuned into his teammates and he knew how to raise the bar and help them achieve. He knew how they were feeling, what motivated them, what they needed in that big moment. He calls it a spidey sense but it's the kind of superpower we can actually get better at. And this conversation with Mark is the best way to learn that great leaders stay tuned in to their people. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Mark Messier. Every leader has their own style and their own way of leading. And today's guest is Hall of Fame hockey legend, Mark Messier who's known as the Moose, the Messiah, the, the captain, and he's described by many as perhaps the greatest team leader in the history of any sport. I'm not talking hockey. I'm talking any sport. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Great to be here with you, David. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to talk to you about leadership, but before we get started, everybody, I want you to just get a load of this. You know, Mark played a staggering 26 seasons was a six-time Stanley Cup champion and the only player to captain two different Stanley Cup teams. He's so renowned for his leadership that the National Hockey League established the Mark Messier Leadership Award. He's also a distinguished officer of Canada for his contributions to hockey as an outstanding player and captain and his ability to influence children. Now, Mark, there's this you know old song. It's like, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. You know, <laughs> how in the heck do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got people around me that uh, tell me the truth. <laughs> we it, all it, need it, that. It, it, it's a good place to start with uh, surrounding yourself with really good people. And um, I think for me personally, uh, you know, one of the gifts that I was afforded very early on is I never really identified myself with uh, Mark Messier, the player, uh, but always Mark Messier, the person. and. Um, and I think with that, you can kind of really separate the two and uh, not get too caught up into all the things that uh, uh, came my way through through the world of sport and hockey. So, And uh, like I say, good people around me that uh, tell me what I need to hear, not necessarily what I want to hear. <laughs> That's great. Mark, when I met you for the first time, I said to myself, this guy, he is straight out of central casting. If you were going to cast a leader, I mean, this guy is it. He looks like a leader. He acts like the leader. You know, he's... I have to ask you, do you believe that you're, you're just a naturally born leader? 
Um, I, I don't, I think there's some parts of DNA that people have that, and traits that attract other people to them. But I think it's also part learned. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, for me, I know that I was had an amazing father and, and a family life that I learned a lot from, uh, both as a, as a person and, and as a leader, I was surrounded by great people. Uh, throughout my whole minor hockey and then into pro hockey that were great leaders. And so I think you really, if you're curious enough, you start watching and, and listening enough to uh, start to see what works and what doesn't work for you personally. And that's what I did. And so I think it might have been a combination uh, of the two, but uh, I don't know if anybody's equipped to just be born a leader without any kind of training or learning along the way. You know, you're described as the quintessential leader. What do you think, Mark, is the essence of leadership? Well, there's just so many elements to it, as you would know. Uh, For me, um, I knew that uh, I needed people around me to have success. And the only way in a team sport to have success is to try to maximize the performance of each and every one of the people that are around you and make them believe that their contributions are absolutely uh, necessary for any team success. And, and so that's, I think that's one element. The other element for me would be that you got to establish relationships that go further than just the game itself, uh, which takes time and it's harder and harder and harder in our world where players change teams more rapidly than they used to be. But as a leader, I think you have to be, you know, very, very conscious of the fact that in order to give anybody, well, John, you know, well, first of all, Abe Lincoln said no man can govern another without his consent. And the great coach, John Wooden, uh, used to say give a, good coaching is being able to give correction without resentment. And so if you really think of those two quotes, which I kind of really are the pillars of my, of my beliefs in leadership, is that uh, in order to lead someone, they have to give you their permission. And, and that permission has to be earned. And I think you earn it through developing a relationship so you can tell them the truth and they don't take it... Uh, take it personally. And so then you just start to foster those relationships. And the other thing I guess I would say is that uh, you got to be willing to be completely uh, uh, open, uh, completely transparent and who you are and what you stand for and your consistency and your personality. Uh, You don't waver in good times and bad. I mean, you're completely exposed (laughs) and vulnerable and you got to be doing the right things consistently. But I think when you do that, it gives everybody a sense of calm around you. Tell us a story, Mark, about your childhood that, that really shaped your, your leadership. You, you mentioned your dad. Well, I think it starts with my dad. And I was lucky enough to have a father that had played semi-professional hockey. He really understood the game of hockey from many different aspects. He was a mentor to many of the kids that he coached. Uh, he knew the game from a technical standpoint. But more importantly, he really knew the game from the emotional uh, standpoint. Um, he was a real team guy. He wasn't necessarily the most talented guy, but uh, he he did lead the league in defensemen and goals a couple of years. But he was a battler. He was a fighter. He fought, stuck up for his teammates, and uh, and he knew that the uh, the power was within within his teammates. And so I think you know I look back at I had the ability to not only him to coach me when I was younger, but I also had the ability to see him mentor young. Uh, kids when I was maybe 12, 13 years old, and I was a stick boy for the for the junior team that my brother was playing on, and my dad was coaching. So I saw him really kind of, you know, take these kids under his wing, believe in them, give them amazing amount of confidence uh, because of his belief in them. 
the way he handled them, the way he told the truth, uh, the way he galvanized the team uh, together, um, and watching him talk to the team in the dressing rooms, being on the bench, you know, through some championship series and just all those things that, you know, were resonated with me so strongly until I was able to, you know, get into a position where I was responsible for some of the leadership of the team that, that I drew on. And, you know, that, that's where I would start. You know, I understand you, you know, you, you joined uh, up with fellow hall of famer, Wayne Gretzky with the Edmonton Oilers. I think when you're both around 18 years old, I'm sure coming up when you were a kid, you were like by far and away better than, you know, almost everyone that you played with. What was it like to see a player as talented as a Wayne Gretzky for the first time? Well, you know, it's, I had a funny start to my uh, minor hockey. We were living in Portland, Oregon, where my dad was playing semi-professional hockey, and they didn't have minor hockey in Portland at the time. So he was responsible for actually starting the whole minor league uh, system of, uh, of youth hockey in Portland. After he retired, when I was about seven years old, we moved back to Edmonton, Alberta. My brother was three years older than me, and he was playing peewee hockey. I should have been playing, you know, two, three years below that. But my dad was coaching a team. He thought it'd be a more efficient use of his time to have us both on the team. So <laughs> I was at seven years old. I was playing against 10 and 11-year-olds. And uh, so I, so it was, it, was, uh, it was good for me in one way. As that, uh, it forced me to have to keep up with the older kids. But to answer your question, I never really excelled at the minor league level. I was a late developer, late bloomer. I didn't grow to I was a little older. You know, it's fortunate to guess, I guess, you know, make junior hockey when I was 15. So I was always, again, playing against older kids. And it wasn't only until my last year of junior that uh, I started to play against, you know, my peer group that I started to kind of hold my own and thought that there might be a future in this. You know, fast forward to when we both turned professional at 17 years old, I was going in a plane going to Indianapolis uh, to join the WHA with with, uh, the Indianapolis Racers. And Wayne had just been sold from the Indianapolis Racers to Edmonton. And so we crossed paths in the air, but still hadn't met. And we finally met in training camp in the fall of 1979 when the Oilers went into the, uh, to the NHL. And, uh, but I had known a lot about Wayne growing up. Uh, there was an uh, article written about him in Canadian Magazine when he was nine years old about this phenom that was scoring you know, 370 goals a year and 400 and 500 assists. And, <laughs> Just unbelievable uh, numbers, and so I'm eight days older than Wayne. So I, I knew of Wayne, but he grew up on the East Coast. I grew up on the on the West Coast, but uh, he was on everybody's radar as a as a young Canadian hockey player that he was going to do something in the, at the NHL level that probably had never been seen before. So when you saw him, did you think he was better than you, or did you think you guys were, you know, right in the same league? Or well, well, I remember driving to practice one day playing junior hockey, and my dad. Uh, I was driving because I had my learner's permit and, you know, we knew about Wayne and I was kind of starting to play okay. And so I, I looked over at my dad. I said, dad, do you think, uh, uh, you know, Wayne is, is way better than me? And he kind of coughed and, um, uh, um, we better stop for some gas over here. (laughs) (laughs) So he was, uh, so uh, he he didn't want to burst my bubble, but it was apparent that Wayne was so much further advanced in his in his skill development, uh, so much advanced in his mental approach to the game, so further advanced in 
his off-ice exposure um, that uh, it was remarkable to watch. Uh, but, you know, not many times can you look at as someone in your own peer group and look up, up to them as role models. But uh, I have to say that I learned a lot from Wayne, watching him in practice, the way he approached the games, the way he lived off the ice, his his concentration and his and his discipline to the game. It was just a, I wouldn't say alarming to me, but uh, it really made me pay attention to what I was doing myself in order to become a better player. You and Gretzky, you, you go on and win four Stanley Cups together. You're close friends. Then he gets traded uh, to Los Angeles. You were creating a dynasty at Edmond for sure, and, and you're split up. How did this impact you? Uh, it was devastating, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, we had come together in 1979, an expansion team. For us to make the playoffs the first year was remarkable, I guess. Uh, nobody expected much of us uh, to five years later winning a Stanley Cup, uh, creating a brotherhood with not only Wayne, but the rest of the guys, um, to winning four Stanley Cups in five years and hadn't even reached our peak of our careers yet. And that summer of 1988, after we won our first cup, uh, there started to be some rumblings that they were going to trade Wayne Gretzky. And I go, what do you mean you're going to trade Wayne Gretzky? You can't trade the greatest player ever to play the game of hockey in the peak of his career when we're, you know, trying to win maybe two, three, four, five more Stanley Cups because we're just in the, and sure enough, when they, when they traded him, it was, it was, it was hard to swallow. Actually, to be honest with you, it was, uh, it was devastating from a professional standpoint. It was super devastating just because of the friendships that we had created. What advice can you give to others when, when you lose a top talent on your team? Well, I think for us, uh, you know, after we were forced to digest it, I think what really kind of came through for all of us is that uh, we still had a responsibility first and foremost to each other. Uh, we had a responsibility to uh, the fans in Edmonton. And we had a responsibility, even though we were mad at the organization, we still had a responsibility to the organization. And, and I think through, you know, the, the mourning process or whatever you want to call it, uh, we had enough leadership on the team to realize that, okay, we were dealt a bad blow, one that we didn't foresee coming, but, you know, what are we going to do about it? You know, what's our future hold for each and every one of us? And we really buckled down and, and maybe even galvanized together more so than ever before. And uh, sure enough, you know, a couple of years later, we were able to win our fifth Stanley Cup in, in seven years. So I think that when you play a team sport, you're really at the mercy of the people around you. And, um, and you know, you're not privileged to some of the decisions that are ever made. So the only thing you really can control is what you can control. So I think that was kind of our, our guiding light to say, look at, uh, you know, we're still a good team. We still are responsible to each other. And sure enough, we were able to win another Stanley Cup in, in uh, 1991. So, Mark, you, you know, you are known for being the captain. I mean, the, the captain. What does being the captain mean to you? I think one of the things that you need to do as a captain is you need to be able to find a way to galvanize the team. And you need to, to as I mentioned earlier, you need to figure out a way to uh, socialize away from the rink to understand how everybody is motivated, where they've come from, uh, what kind of childhood they lived, what, what were the factors in them becoming a pro, you know, what were the things that really kind of inspired them to be a professional hockey player and kind of find that commonality as a group. And some teams, it takes longer to find that. And, and you look at the teams that actually win, there's always something that galvanized the team. 
uh, together. So, you, you know, as a captain, you're always looking for that. And so obviously a way to do some of that is to spend quality time with the players uh, on and off the ice. And, uh, and when I say the, the second thing is that, uh, you know, you are a family, uh, you're an extended family. You have to be inclusive to everybody and the, and the, and the girlfriends and wives are a huge part of, of the player's success. And you want them to feel part of the team's success. And, you know, all the teams that I played on, we had a great group of girls. Uh, we really enjoyed each other's time. Um, and, and we created a real family atmosphere that, uh, in, in the end, when I look back at some of the things that, you know, we did well and didn't do well, one of the things that we did really well is, was create that kind of environment. And, uh, I think it would, it led to great success because of it. As I mentioned earlier, your, your nickname was Moose because of your strength and your aggression and your intimidation uh, on the ice. And you've got the trademark uh, iron jaw. <laughs> it, you know. But when Gretzky left, the hockey experts that you know I've read about, so they say you went from being a physical player to a finesse player, which almost seems funny to me. But you know, the only guy to do that, like you did it, is the Hall of Famer Gordie Howe. How hard was it? For you to change your mindset and become the best playmaker in the game or did you ever see it that way i didn't really see it that way too. I, my game was never uh about goals and assists um, i mean i was kind of always under the impression that every game brought new set of challenges and you just tried to figure a way to solve the puzzle each and every night and sometimes it took scoring goals sometimes it took time to be more physical sometimes you had to sit back and let other people take the lead. Um, and it just was different all the time. And that's what really kind of was so interesting to me as I got later in my career is that you just never knew. Or one of the things that really kind of kept me playing for 26 years was so trying to solve those riddles each and every uh, uh, training camp. You actually, you know, you, you mentioned it, that you, you went on to win your fifth cup in, in, at Edmonton in 1990. Uh, was it even more special for you because you, you you did it without Gretzky? Well, a lot of people thought it would be, but I didn't really look at it that way. Um, I looked at it as, as when Wayne got traded that we really lost a brother and, and it was really hard for us to get over that. Uh, I remember winning this, the fifth Stanley Cup and just being so proud of uh, the guys, the young kids that were on the team that played a huge role. Uh, the, the veterans that were there through the Wayne years that, uh, you know, s stayed steadfast and provided an amazing leadership uh, to the whole team. And it just that super sense of pride that you're able to accomplish something that probably a lot of people didn't think you could. And then at, at the same time, thinking that wishing, you know, Wayne would have been there with us to celebrate another one. So was, I was conflicted. I didn't think I, that I had to prove anything that you know, we could win without Wayne. You talk about being egoless. I mean, I never, I understood Wayne and his impact on us. You could probably take Wayne and put him on any one of our division rivals there, and they might have been the ones that won four or five cups as well. I mean, he was that big of impact. But at the same time, we all knew that we played a role on the team that supported him. And uh, so I didn't feel that a need personally to justify my own leadership or my own steadfast uh, belief in myself or my place in was hockey history. Um, I, I just, I just remember distinctly being uh, more saddened than uh, joyful that we won. Yeah. You were definitely viewed as the heart and soul of the team. And, uh, and he got most of the attention because of his 
you know, superstardom, I guess, and you were a superstar too, but it never really bothered you that he was called the great one or there's no jealousy, no rivalry. Well, he was. <laughs> I was privileged, not only myself, but everybody who played with him for all those years to witness sheer genius every day. Yeah. Uh, in practice, in the games, uh, the way he handled the press, the way he grew the game. Uh, it was remarkable. And for anybody not to sit there, I mean, I know I became a better player playing with Wayne. Um, I never tried to be Wayne. I never tried to compete with Wayne. I knew I had a role in the team and I needed to be the very best I could be in that role to uh, to help the team become the champions we were. So there was never a competition. There was never an ego thing about who was better. And I think Wayne would say the same thing. That's fantastic. You know, you, you, so you end up leaving Edmonton, you go to the New York Rangers and, and, and when you went to the Rangers, they hadn't won a cup since 1940, this, and you go in 1991, it, it was actually called the curse in New York. You're never going to win a, a, a cup. What made you decide to take on that challenge? Well, it was interesting. We had lost in the semifinals uh, my last year in Edmonton. And uh, I had come off a knee injury during the regular season. I wasn't healthy. And, you know, uh, we went on that run of five cups in seven years, uh, lost the next year. And you could kind of just see that uh, the team was changing directions. A lot of the guys that were there for the run were getting older, being traded. And it just felt to me that it was over. I mean, I, there was just nothing for me left to give physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and I just really needed to, I knew I wasn't finished playing hockey per se, but I needed to change uh, professionally and I needed to change uh, 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 personally. And so when you really start to think about, you know, what challenges would really kind of get you motivated again, you, you obviously start with the original six teams, you know, Montreal, Toronto, uh, New York, Boston, you know, all the teams that I, you know, Detroit, Chicago, uh, but being a avid traveler and, and wanting to see the world and coming to New York and, and, and knowing what New York had to offer um, personally, not to mention the, the challenge of winning in, you know, original six city of this magnitude with this much attention on the team. It was just, uh, the combination was just too good to be passed up. And so I asked Glenn to trade me to New York and uh, the rest was history. <laughs> yeah. So you come in and you're they actually, now you got a new nickname. You're the Messiah. You know, you're going to take them <laughs> to the promised lanes. And, and when I think about it, Tom Brady is is facing something similar. I mean, he left the Patriots and he's now at Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What advice would you give him on how to handle the, the pressure of coming in as the superstar that's supposed to get you to the, the big cup? Well, I, I don't think Tom needs any advice from me. Uh, he's done pretty well on his own. Uh, but I, but I found what I found interesting leaving Edmonton and being really confident in what I'd learned and the experiences that I had. What I didn't anticipate coming to New York is that all those lessons that I'd learned along the way and all the experiences I wasn't going to be able to share with my new teammates because they weren't interested in what Wayne and I had done in Edmonton together. What cups we. The only thing they were interested in is what I was going to do with them and our experiences together. So I had to figure out a way to use that experience and all those lessons, but not in a way that uh, I was talking about Edmonton or talking about Wayne, Wayne and I did it this way. We had our dressing room set up this way. We traveled this way. We got ready for the game this way. And when I realized that, it was like, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm really stuck. I got, I got this book of, of how to win and I can't use it. But what I really realized is that uh, you, you just start to 
dig in in your approach and the, the way you prepare uh, your work ethic, the way you talk to your teammates, the way you talk to the media. And pretty soon you start to talk about the culture of, the, of your new team and, and institute certain things, but never with the reference, this is why it worked and why it didn't work and whatever. Always just with the thought that maybe this is a good idea. If it isn't, maybe we'll change it. But And then you kind of drag them into the process, which is absolutely critical to any team success that everybody feels a part of it. And they're a part of creating a new culture. They're you know, they're, they like it. They don't like it. If we don't like it, we change it. If it's good, bad, or indifferent, but they're part of the process. And I think that's one of the things that Tom will find uh, going to Tampa is that uh, it, it is going to be vastly different from where he came from. You know, players are going to be looking at him to, to, uh, to see how he prepares and, and, and all that, which is obvious, but um, just really digging into the trenches and spending time with his new teammates. So they know that they're, that he's in with them and whatever happened in his past life is gone. He's only worried about one thing and how they're going to become champions in Tampa. What kind of attitude, Mark, did you try to instill as the new captain of the Rangers? What was the biggest challenge you had to give him? Well, one of the things that uh, I, I remember about my, maybe it was my, I was a month into coming to New York and we had a bad game and, and I kind of, addressed the press saying that you know you know that's just not acceptable uh from a player standpoint from a coaching managing something to the fact that uh, you know the rangers we need to be better overall and so i got called in the office the next day and said that mark uh you know if you have something a voice some concerns about the way things are going maybe we should just keep it quiet because you know this is kind of a publicly traded company and we might not want to be uh <laughs> upsetting the uh, share price uh so that was uh, that was interesting. Well, what do you think when they told you to clamp it? I mean, you're out there. You're telling people what you believe. You believe in truth, and now they're telling you, "Hey, Mark, uh, keep it keep it quiet." Well, I realize that there's a bit, the big part of it is is that uh, the messaging coming from actually inside the dress room is super important to your fan base. I mean, the writers are going to write what they write, and the and the, and the skeptics are going to write what they want, and and all this external argument or or writings or commentary is going to happen. But if you can get a really decisive message coming directly from the source inside the dressing room to the fan base, you can create a connection there. So, so that was okay. We just had to do it a different way and, and, and work around it. I mean, that's just what you got to do. Right. But at the same time, uh, there also was a sense of not wanting to talk about winning the Stanley cup for the fact that we're going to put too much pressure on everybody. And I realized right away that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. I mean, if we if we don't you know know where we're going, uh, how are we going to get there? Uh, right. You know, I remember my first year in 1979. We got these beautiful winter coats as a Christmas gift in the dressing room. And I, when I looked inside, uh, this is an expansion team. Right inside, it was 1979 inception, and then 1980 Stanley Cup champions. Uh, you know, 1980 blank. Stanley Cup champion. So already the subliminal messaging was going on is that we're going to win at some point. Are you going to be on this gravy train or not? So I, I, I don't think you can be successful if you don't want to talk about it and you don't create the, the vision and the roadmap of how you're going to get there. And so I think that was one of the things that we had to start doing. And of course, you know, Mike Keenan came in the third year and showed the ticker tape parade of what it would look like, uh, you know, down the Canyon of Heroes. And so you just start that whole process of changing the culture and the dialect of the team that internal dialect that is so critical to 
the way you think of yourself as a, as a person and as a player and what you think of yourself as a team, what the expectations are, and things had to change. I heard a very insightful story about what happened in the locker room where a Ranger, uh, a Ranger jersey had fallen to the floor. Do you remember that story, Mark? Well, I think there's always stories like that. And, and, and I think the respect of the jersey, and, and, it's, and it's, you know, you could look at the, the jersey as a piece of cloth with a name and a number on it, or you could look at it at all the great men and women that have worn jerseys in the past to create the history and to create the incredible uh, moments for, for fans and people and alike. Uh, so it becomes much more sacred than just a piece of cloth. So I think that and the respect of that and knowing that the players around you have that respect for it. And if they have the respect for that, then they're going to have the respect for themselves. And if they have the respect for themselves, they're going to have the respect for their teammates. And so you can see where the whole, chain uh, starts to happen when you when you start doing things the, the right way you know after you talked about there shouldn't be a, a a ranger jersey on the floor i don't think it ever fell to the on that floor again <laughs> did it <laughs> you know? well putting pride in the jersey is, is 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 a good first step on any team's winning formula you go to the rangers you know when new york at the time was notorious for always you know, bringing in, signing the big name players who were always like one or two years past their prime. And there are a lot of people when you came from Edmond to New York who thought that you might be past your prime, that your better days were, were behind you. How much did that motivate you? Well, you know, when I came to New York, I was 31 and there was an article in the paper that said I was actually 62 because if you take 31 and you times it by two because of all the playoff games that I played and all the years that I already and all the miles that I had on me that I was actually 62 in hockey years, so I was over the hill. <laughs> so, you know what, in some regards, they were right. Uh, you know, I had played a lot of hockey uh, as a 31-year-old, you know, six cups in 10 years, uh, countless Canada Cups in the summertime, all-star games. Uh, it was basically boiling down to, you know, 11 months of hockey for a long time. So they weren't wrong, but I wasn't anywhere near done physically. Uh, I was not anywhere near done mentally in fact mentally i felt probably more empowered than i ever have when i came to new york because of the experiences i had i was blessed with only a few minor injuries uh, throughout my career one being a knee injury that was just stretched ligaments which is basically you know just some rehab and strengthening and so uh clean bill of health and uh that motivated me but not motivated me more than when i got to new york and and got to witness the passion from the fan base here, from generations of fans that uh, had never seen a Stanley Cup, who had supported the team, only to be disappointed in defeat. Uh, that is, it was uh, so inspiring. And, and um, you know, I just, when I think about it now, it was, it was one of the huge motivators for me is, is to be a part of a team that could actually end that uh, you know, that 50 at the time, 51 year, year drought. Yeah. You know, in your first season as a Ranger, you proved the critics wrong. Obviously you led the team to the division title, you win the MVP, but the next year you guys don't even make the playoffs. The team doesn't even get into the playoffs. You know, what did you learn from that experience? What I was really kind of encouraged when I came here was all the young talent they have, you know, um, especially with Brian Leach. Um, and then soon after uh, Mike Richter and, Alex Kovalev and Sergei Zubov, all the young superstars that came in here. But what I did learn uh, that year is that, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are under your control. Um, 
if you've won before and you and you've experienced winning, you know uh, the difference between winning hockey games or actually having a winning hockey team. And uh, even though we won the President's Trophy, uh, you know, and, and we played really well and it was exciting and there was we brought a lot of hope, there were still holes on the team that needed to be addressed. And we got exposed this, the, the second year and we got exposed in the second year because we did have some injuries, namely to Brian Leach and, and others um, that left us on the outside looking in, which was very tough. But one of the things, you know, the, there's always a silver lining. Uh, you know, I, I talk about it all the time. My experience in New York early on is that, you know, we won the President's Trophy the first year only to be defeated in the playoffs like they had, like every Ranger team had every other year, <laughs> only to go to the next year and, you know, completely hit rock bottom. You, we could not have hit more rock bottom or me personally as a player coming to New York. And then the third year rising up above the ashes and and going on and winning after 54 years. So I think that experience alone made it so much more impactful for me to experience the, that the great high all the way down to, to see and feel what it was like in New York to be, you know, at the very lowest you can as an athlete and then come out of that and then to win. I think it just made the experience that much more special. You know, in that season where you didn't make the playoffs, I remember the last game you were basically booed throughout the game, that the team was booed. How did that motivate the team? And you? Well, at the time, <laughs> I don't know if motivating would be the right word. Um, but, you know, I grew up in Edmonton who didn't have NHL hockey. I grew up in Edmonton that didn't even have professional hockey until 1972. Uh, but you can only imagine the passion that there was in, a, you know, a Western city, Montreal Canadiens, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, all the original six teams, my uncle's passionate hockey fans that had their favorites. You know, an expansion, but we got a team out west in Vancouver. Um, and so I came from a, a city, uh, an expansion team in the, in the NHL that had an incredible fan base and small town that was in a isolated box of hockey-centric people and a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think it's one of the things that actually, if used in the right way and, and, and regulated in the right way, and you can, you can use as fuel. And so when I came to New York, I understood the frustration and the, or at least I could put the frustration of the fans in context. And you'd like to say you don't take it personally, but I did take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I took it as my fault. Uh, and, and I wanted to do something about it. You and the Rangers, you do get back in the playoffs over 1994 again. And, you know, you, you do win the cup, but you're playing New Jersey on the way to the, the, the finals. And you're, you're down three to two in the games. The, the fans of media are once again going, here we go again. And you have the courage, or I don't know if it's courage or whatever it was. You want to, whatever way plain, plain stupidity. <laughs> courage or stupidity, however you want to choose it. You know, to say that the Rangers will win game seven. What made you say it? And then what was it like the next day when you pick up the papers and you're seeing headlines that says, we will win? I mean, you're a pretty humble guy basis this conversation, what I know of you. You know, every time we did something good with the Rangers that year, we had an amazing year. You know, won the President's Trophy, set all kinds of team records. But we're always reminded every time we did something good that the team that did the same kind of thing always ended up in defeat in the first round, second round. So we're always met with this great accolade about something that we did, but then reminded that the same team that did the same thing didn't win the Stanley Cup. So, uh, the, you know, there's always a constant reminder for us as, as players uh, 
and you can't get away from it. You just have to embrace it. And so when we got into that situation, uh, you know, after the first two rounds and we're cruising through and we got up against a great New Jersey Devil team that had just kind of started to emerge as themselves, uh, you know, with Broder and Ned and the great defense that they had and the coach. And, you know, uh, I think the thing that saved us is that we were able to beat New Jersey six times during the regular season. And as a captain, you're always monitoring the the mental state of your team, both as a, as a team and as individuals. And, um, you know, it's just kind of a spider sense that you get. And sometimes when I talked earlier in, in the conversation about being very honest and open, uh, that was one of the times that, you know, it, it would just seem to be that uh, the team, although I could have said it to them and I did say it to them privately, but I wasn't so much measuring it uh, to for the for them to wake up and read in the papers as I was measuring it uh, to the press. I was I was speaking to the press that look at I really believe we can win this game. I really believe we can go in there and win because we've done it before. We've done it six times, and of course uh, the next it was great bulletin board you know material the next day. But I wanted the team to really believe that we could win, and I wanted them to believe that we could win. And uh, sure enough, we're able to to go in and win in game six and in game seven. But, uh, you know, in a nutshell, I knew how close we were. I knew we had a good enough team to win the Stanley Cup. I knew we were facing a tough opponent. I knew we came to one of those seminal moments that you face in any playoff year on the way to the Stanley Cup that you have to look each other in the eye and ask each other, do we have more to give or is this it for us? We had to figure out a way to overcome that hurdle and, and we're able to. You know, it was like Babe Ruth calling the home run, you know, pointing out to the stands is like Namus saying, you know, we're going to win the, you know, win the Super Bowl. It was it was a historic sporting uh, moment, no question about it. But then you had to go out and back it up, just like Ruth and Naaman did. And you you scored a hat trick in the final period and uh, you come from behind. What did you feel like when you saw the team was down 2-0, OK, right off the bat and you were in such a hole? How did you lift the team up? Well, I think uh, it's. it's uh, I, I don't think I did lift the team up. I think Mike Richter lifted the team up. I think when it got two nothing, it was a, it was a tale of two games. Uh, we knew that we had lost momentum. New Jersey was a great team. Uh, they had a lot of size, a lot of skill, a lot of defense, great goaltending. They came at us, which we knew, uh, and exactly what probably we expected, but we're hoping it didn't. They got off to a two nothing lead. We decided to figure out a way to stay in it. And thankfully, Mike Richter just completely stood on his head or it could have been four or five nothing after the first half of the game. But we were lucky enough to get a goal, which was interesting, right towards the end of the second period. And New Jersey had always been kind of known as a defensive team. But when they came out in that game six, they completely outskated us. They forechecked us. They were really honest in, in every way. And it was just a, a landslide of, of a game. But when we scored that goal late in the second period, when we came out to the third period, they had kind of got back into a little more defensive posture, which allowed us to really start to tilt the game the other way. And um, and maybe it was a little inexperienced. Maybe it was they were trying to hold on to that one goal lead. I don't know what it was, but uh, for whatever reason, we seemed to get our footing. And I believe that goal at the end of the second kind of, you know, we went into the dressing room after being completely dominated for two periods with a sense of hope, you know, let's just go out and have a good period. Let's just, whatever we do, let's just put it all aside, go out and have a good third period and just see what happens. So we kind of maybe relieved the pressure on ourselves in, in some ways that we got one period to, to do it. And 
And sure enough, uh, we're able to turn the tides and win that game. But I, I still say Mike Richter saved the day. <laughs> you, you then go on. You do win the championship uh, by beating Vancouver. And you're hoisting the cup for the sixth time. And my understanding is, is you handed the cup actually over to the fans. What made you do that? Had, had anybody ever done that before? <laughs> well, the first Stanley Cup we had ever won in Edmonton, uh, the fans poured over the glass. And so if you look at the, the uh, videos of those old cups, you can see all the fans were actually on the ice. Uh, I remember the dying moments of the game in, in, in New York, and you could see all the police around the glass to kind of keep some order, hopefully if we had won or even if we didn't. But coming from a small town in Edmonton and, and having the success that we did there, I just knew the connection was so powerful between the team and the fans and how much it meant to the fans in so many ways. And I, it was one of those times that I wish I could have just taken the glass down and everybody would have poured like they do onto a football field in high school or, or college or one of those where everybody just rushed the ice and we all celebrated it together till the wee hours in the morning. But, you know, it, it was just uh, it was just instinctual, I think. And, and I just kind of because of my past experience, I just knew how much it meant to them. When you look back, what are the little things that have to happen for a team to come together like the Rangers did? And, and you basically became sort of like the ultimate team together. I mean, what advice can you give the leaders on how to make that happen? Well, I think the big thing for us is that uh, we had some amazing young players like, you know, Kovalev and Zubov and Leach and Richter. We had a great group of veterans to complement those guys. We became a really solid team through the commonality of doing something that hadn't been done in 54 years. And of course, there's little things along the way that that galvanize the team. And, and, and as you know, there could be a horrible experience in a family or there could be a great, someone gave a uh, birth to a child. I mean, there could be anything that happens that for whatever reason, uh, the team galvanizes around. You're obviously Mark, a very tough guy and, and, but you're not afraid to show emotions and uh, you know, you'll even shed a tear every now and then. How important do you think that is, uh, for being a leader? Well, I don't know. If, I think there's different types of leadership. I think being completely open and transparent, honest, uh, you know, is is critical. I think, uh, you know, being vulnerable is not a sign of weakness. Um, I think being compassionate is not a sign of weakness. I think being tolerant is not a sign of weakness. I think the consistency uh, is is super important. I think the team or your players or your workers or whoever you're leading has to uh, really understand you and know you. And, you know, and I, and I think those vulnerabilities are a part of that and not to pretend that you're Teflon, you don't have your own insecurities or whatever, but you figure out how to deal with them and you're here to make everybody better and you might make mistakes. But I think that where some leaders fail is that they're trying to be too perfect. They're trying to be something that they're not. They're not willing to be vulnerable. If you you know, establish those relationships that we talked about earlier and you do make a mistake, they know you made a mistake out of trying to do something that was best for the team and you can recover from that. But if, if you don't have the backing of the people you're trying to lead and you make a mistake, it's like, aha, it's a gotcha moment. 
and that 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 bond and trust is is broken. So you know, it's really kind of a a, a fine line that you walk as a leader, and uh, and I, I I certainly learned a lot, and I don't take it lightly for anybody that's in the position now. You know, if you were going to build a team from scratch, what behaviors would you drive in your your culture? Well, that's a that's a great question. I mean, creating an environment that is conducive to winning, it holds people accountable, and it's your beacon and guidelines, goalposts to any time a decision has to be made, both externally and internally, that you can kind of rely on that to see if any one person can fit into the mold that you're trying to create. And look at I I've I always said that you know winning seems to be like a great time and it is obviously when you win it's a great time but winning can be sure hell winning is the toughest thing that it that you ever do because it's hard and it's uh and a lot of it is required of you on and off the ice a lot of it is required of you to grow as a person to figure out how to be a champion because you're just not a champion from seven o'clock to ten o'clock at night you have to become a champion uh, the way you live your life and 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 that's what we're, when we start talking about culture those are the things that you have to get into our friend Doug Hirsch had you speak at the SOM conference, and he said they always have fabulous speakers. And he told me you're the only one <laughs> who's received a standing ovation in 25 years that they've had that conference. I told Doug that wasn't because of my speech. That was because of uh, the Ranger fans were there, and we brought the Stanley <laughs> Cup here. <laughs> well, you know, as a leader, though, you are called on to give the, the big speech. How do you prepare for that? Um, I think it comes from complete a place of uh, authentic uh, emotion. It's not like it's delivered without any kind of thought behind it. I think, like I said earlier, you're always taking the temperature of the team psychologically, emotionally, physically, as a group and, and as, as individuals. And you can kind of tell if the team starts to lean a little bit one way or starts to lean a little bit off course the other way. And, and you're really there just to guide it back in, into the lane. And sometimes things need to be addressed. And, and, and I always felt that uh, being completely honest, no matter how hard the, the news that you had to deliver to the team or to any individual was important for me because I needed to be able to go home and sleep at night <laughs> because <laughs> I was, because I had to live, I had to live 30 or 35 lives um, <laughs> uh, during the regular season. And, and if, and if I was worried about everybody's, how they accepted any kind of constructive criticism, you know, I, I wouldn't get any sleep. Uh, and so I think that by telling the truth, what I really did was I put the onus back on them to make a decision of how they wanted to uh, react to that uh, uh, information. And getting right back to where we started, if, if, if I don't have that relationship that they believe me and trust me, um, then of course they can take that as that information as resentment. And then that brings on a whole nother episode, but uh, of, of something that a, a leader has to deal with. But so I really tried to be super honest. I, uh, I addressed the facts very matter of factly. I challenged the, the team. Um, and I left no stone unturned. And because of it, uh, we weren't talking in pockets. We weren't talking around corners. We weren't whispering. Everything was an open book. And, and because of it, uh, we weren't clicky. Um, you know, I had great leaders around me that could continue to deliver the message that I had for the players. And so it wasn't only coming from one source. Everywhere, everywhere they went, whether they're laying on the training table they're hearing the same story from the trainer. If they went into the stick room, they're hearing the same story from the stick guy. Uh, so no matter where they turned, it was the same messaging going on. And that's why you have to have great people around you.
Mark, you seem to be a real student of leadership. Uh, when did you? When did this happen? Well, I don't know if I was always a student of leadership. I think what happened to me is that I was getting an education probably without even me knowing it at younger from my father and then turning pro and, and seeing great, great leaders like, you know, Lee Foglin and Ron Chipperfield and our first captains and then Wayne taking over and Teddy Green and uh, our assistant coach who recently passed away, who I had so much respect for, uh, you know, you just get around people that have those leadership capabilities until you're put in that position, you don't really know. You know, I guess when I became captain, I think I was well-equipped. When Wayne left, I didn't need to change much. I, uh, st- I stayed vocal in the dressing room. I guess the only thing that really changed for me when he left is I had to become a more prominent offensive player, which I was able to do. But everything else, as far as the leadership, I just stayed the same. Mark, how have you transferred your, your leadership on the ice now to, to off the ice? Well, I think there's so many parallels that I didn't expect uh, when I retired and I started into the private sector and and talking to people and tried to trying to build companies uh, and knocking on doors and going into boardrooms and just sitting back and watching people and analyzing people and watching CEOs come into the room and watching the team around them, how you're greeted when you first get off the elevator. And you could really tell the difference between cultures in the office place, which I found just fascinating because I didn't really expect that. And I, first of all, I didn't really expect to go in there and start analyzing different companies, but it just came to me naturally because I'd spent so much time with people. So it just struck me how evident it was that we're, we're, we're a company that was being run by a CEO that was leading from behind or it didn't have the, the normal pyramid structure where you, you're lily padding to different seats to, to get it on top. Uh, you know, it's run more of a circular where everybody's on the circle and everybody's got an oar in the, in the water rowing in the same direction. So it was fascinating to me. And I, and I just think that, uh, you know, no matter, you know, what you're trying to do or what you're trying to build or what company you're trying to, it's, it's all in the people. You, you've, you've, got to, you've got to empower the people somehow. Now, what are your business interests today? I know you, you mentioned you have a passion for wellness. Uh, what are you doing on that front, for example? Yeah, so, you know, we, we started to galvanize uh, these boutique fitness chains all under one roof. Um, and my wife goes to five or six different places to work out and you know, you think about the amount of uh, time and travel and efficiency that there might be a better way to do that uh, with the big box retailers struggling, trying to reimagine that space. It seemed like to be uh, with my partner, Isaac Chera from Crown Acquisitions. They were had their, you know, their pulse on that real estate. COVID-19 hit and we quickly realized that that was going to be delayed. And uh, we pivoted to a more of a digital platform. And uh, I guess through the COVID-19, when people started working out more at home, there was an opportunity to do something good and, and give away some home workout trainers uh, that had a great following. And you could log on to honeycombfit.com uh, or honeycomb.fit on our Instagram and get a free workout from an elite trainer. You could get a, a healthy meal plan. You could get some recommendations and some tips from a, a sport performance psychologist. Uh, you can listen to interviews with interesting people from around the world. Uh, I am scouring the world for different ways of, of uh, the way people uh, live healthy uh, and healthy around the world to educate uh, the people here. So it's become this really kind of cool 
digital platform for health and wellness, which I was always interested in because I played till I was 46. So I was trying to figure out the magic sauce myself, <laughs> trying to stay relevant in a young man's game. So fitness to me has always been really uh, fun. I, I love working out. I love feeling good. I love the energy that it gives me. And this seemed to be a natural segue. So we've just kind of been knocking it out of the park with the honeycombfit.com where we call ourselves a home of health and wellness. And we want to be an aggregator of, of all of the best in practice and, uh, and a trusted source of health and wellness, whether it be a product or a, or a trainer that's an up and coming to expose their different training methods to people that are already in the industry. And whether you're a health and wellness fanatic that you've been doing it for 30 years or you've been on the couch for 20 years and you want to take a step into changing your lifestyle, we have something for you at Honeycomb. And that was the inspiration behind it. Well, and the other thing I have to mention too, just quickly, is, is the Kingsbridge uh, National Ice Center up in the Bronx where we're trying to change the, uh, the whole narrative around ice sports in, in, in New York City in the metropolitan area by building uh, nine sheets of ice in the old Kingsbridge Armory, which uh, will be a game changer for the youth hockey uh, program in New York City. And we've been working on that for about eight years. It's been an amazing project. Uh, we're, we're, we're working hard towards finalizing and finishing that product. And I've always said with three uh, NHL teams in the metropolitan area, our, our young kids deserve a better opportunity and, and more access to ice sports. And, and that's what we're trying to deliver. Fantastic. I know you were considered at one point as a possible coach for the New York Rangers. Uh, and you've talked about coaches in this uh, conversation. What about the possibility of you coaching in the future, Mark? You know what? I, I've, I've always felt that hockey uh, will, will be a part of my life. It's what I know best. I, I always felt that I have a lot to offer because of my experiences and because of the way I was brought up. And just because you coach doesn't mean you're a coach. There's a huge teaching element to coaching. You know, I, my dad was an amazing you know, he was an educator, a master's degree in special education, had an incredible way of teaching kids and getting the kids to believe in themselves. And I think that's all part of coaching. I would never say never, but as you know, you got to be surrounded by the right people. You got to have the opportunity with the right people. You have to have someone believe in you that you can do the job for them. And when that day happens, I'd be more than happy to help any organization that would see the benefit of having me involved. Mark, this has been so much fun, and I, I want to have a little bit more and do a lightning round of Q&A before we wrap this okay. up, okay? okay. Uh, you know, what are three words that best describe you? Uh, compassionate, uh, competitive, and I would say uh, humble. All right. How many fights did you get into? Did you ever count them? Uh, too many. Um, and, 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 as, and I think it was one of the NHL players said, if the fights were fake, you'd see me a lot more of them there. But uh, <laughs> so, 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 the, so too many. I'm thankfully I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> What's the toughest hit you ever took? You know what? The, the toughest hits I ever uh, received, I don't remember because I was out cold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you think, yes or no, do you think your Gretzky Edmonton team is the best hockey team ever? Uh, no, uh, no question. Hard to argue the Montreal, great Montreal Canadian teams in the, in the, in the mid seventies, the Islander teams of the, of the eighties, you could make an argument for all of them. Uh, but, uh, the, the difference being, uh, Wayne being on our team, I think he tips the hat to Edmonton. You know, the Stanley Cup's the most famous trophy in sports with the wildest tradition. As I understand it, every member of the winning team gets it for a few days. What's the wildest thing you ever did with the cup? 
you know what? I, I, don't, I think the cup has seen it all. Uh, I think that was one <laughs> of the greatest things about the cup is that we're able to share it with the fans. Uh, you know, the, the cup has gone fishing, it's gone swimming, it's gone to the beach, it's gone to hospitals, it's, uh, it's gone to schools, it's gone to the White House. Uh, the, the, the Stanley Cup has uh, had a great life. It's, uh, it's, it's well-traveled and it's got a lot of culture behind it. <laughs> how, how about you? Are you going to give us what you did as well? You know, I, 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 couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't say one, one crazy thing, but uh, I'll leave it to the listener's imagination. <laughs> okay. okay. What's your biggest pet peeve? Biggest pet peeve, probably now, which is amazing because uh, I was not good early, but uh, probably tardiness or lateness. Uh, I had to learn some some hard lessons uh, that my time wasn't more valuable than everybody else's. It was a tough lesson to learn as a young guy, but now now I really believe that uh, uh, you know everybody's time is just as valuable. So if you're if you're supposed to be doing something, show up on time. What's something about you few people would know? Geez, I don't know. My life's been pretty much an open book. Uh, I'm writing a book. Uh, yeah. They probably don't know that I'm in the midst <laughs> of writing a book, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> I thought you might say you, you own your own plane and you fly it. <laughs> well, I do. I do own my own plane. Uh, that, that is a, a little four-seater single engine, which uh, when I retired, I, I, I got my pilot's license. And I always wanted to do it when I was playing, uh, but I never had the chance or the opportunity. So when I retired, I did it. And it's been an amazing experience. You know, what's your favorite retirement gift? I would have to say those fishing rods. I, uh, I've spent a lot of years uh, traveling around fishing, uh, looking for blue marlin. And uh, I enjoyed the adventure of it. And uh, when the rangers gave me the fighting chair and the fishing rods to go with it, it was an amazing gift. <laughs> you know, you're a 2.5 golf in- index. What's your best round and where? Uh, my best round, I shot two under at Anglebrook, uh, right up here in Somers, New York. Uh, I've shot par a few times, but I'm always in that kind of 73, 74 range. I've never practiced much. I've never taken a lesson. I've played with great players who've given me playing tips, but I'm a self-taught left-handed hockey player playing golf right. So uh, things things can be fleeting at best. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark, what would be three bits of advice you'd give aspiring leaders? You know dig into your people on a personal level i I think the power is with the people i think the power is in the players i think you need to establish those relationships i think you need to be tolerant Uh, you have to establish the trust between you and and the players you have to earn the right to lead them and the only way you can do that is to establish those interpersonal relationships that are not easy in in a professional world whether in business or in in sport because of the time required but it is investment that is will sustain you as a leader you know i know you're passionate about giving back can you tell us how you're going about it as a leader and and what you're doing with the mark messier foundation well you know when i came to new york i realized that i was getting pulled in a lot of different directions to help out and i think there's over 16,000 501c3s registered in new york state or new york metropolitan alone uh it would be impossible to help everybody although i tried and i uh, got myself aligned with the Tomorrow's Children Fund very early on, which was uh, a group of people who had kids with terminally ill cancer who spent basically their lives in hotel hallways while the kids were being treated. So they out in Hackensack University Hospital, they built a wing uh, for the children. And, and, and of course, and I, they built a skyway between the women's pavilion and the children's pavilion that I was kind of more of a, a, an area there that you could walk between the two pavilions. But then I set up a 
place for the kids to go play and families to visit and with all my trophies and videos and games and and whatnot. And so I worked with them for years and the Garden of Dreams and, you know, Make-A-Wish Foundation until ultimately I, I, I realized that by starting my own foundation, uh, I had the ability to help a lot of different kids. And, and so my foundation is really geared toward providing access and opportunity to kids that don't necessarily have the resources or their parents in position to help them. And the big part of the Kingsbridge Armory is that uh, is, is given back to that community and, and giving kids free equipment, free coaching, and free ice time uh, when we finally get built, which will be a game changer for New York. That's great. And Mark, just two last questions here. How important do you think it is for a leader to, to have a purpose in their life? And how would you define yours today? Well, it's interesting, you know, when I read uh, Andre Agassi's book and, and growing up playing tennis and he wasn't sure about tennis and didn't necessarily like tennis and it was hard and long days and he'd rather be doing something else. And it was only until he really found his own purpose that he allowed himself to love the game of tennis, which obviously enabled him to start his own foundation and really make an impact. So I think, you know, having a purpose, uh, you know, both professionally and personally is, is absolutely critical. And I, I love the term servanthood leadership. It, 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 it means so much, but, you know, we're here to help others. We're here to serve others. We can use our platforms to help others. And if you create a purpose like Andre did, I, I think it was life-changing for him. And I know for myself personally, being uh, able to give back in those areas that I have since I came to New York and even starting at the Alberta Lung Association in Edmonton, it's been, it's been life-changing for me. Uh, last question here. How much has, has the support you've received from your family influenced your, your success? Well, I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm truly blessed to have had a family that I did. I think all super smart folks, uh, driven, you know, I think we had a good enough relationship that, uh, they would tell me what I needed to hear. You know, I had a father who played hockey, who understood hockey. I had a mom who, you know, spent her whole, uh, early adult life to taking my brothers and sisters to our events and, and putting in the time so we could excel. So when you look back at it, uh, you know, I was lucky. Um, not everybody has that. And I think that is something that never can be taken for granted. And for the kids that don't have that, how can we, you know, support them in those ways? Because I think it's absolutely critical to have that support system, whether from your own family or somebody growing up to be a good role model and uh, to give them the opportunity to uh, uh, chase a passion that they have. Well, Mark, there's no question you're an incredible role model, an incredible leader, and uh, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation and all you're doing to, to give back to those that aren't as fortunate as you. Well, I, I certainly appreciate that, and uh, the work's only started. Well, I think you'll agree, that's one powerful story about one great leader. You know, it's obvious that Mark cares deeply about his teammates and really making a difference, not only with his team, but in his community and for everybody that he has the privilege to be around. And it's really amazing how he always has his finger on the pulse of his team, how he knows what makes each member of a team tick and how to motivate them and how to help them become the best that they can be. And that what he calls spidey sense well, that spidey sense developed because he always took the time to get to know his teammates. Think about it. 
He really earned his role as a leader in their life. This week, as a part of your weekly personal development plan, let's keep it simple. Just invite a teammate to coffee or lunch. No agenda, no one-on-one meeting, just a casual but intentional time to connect and hear what's going on in their life. You know, it can be so easy to overlook this kind of soft stuff in our busy calendars where we're trying to drive hard results. But great leaders stay tuned into their teams by building relationships because they know just like the moose, just like the captain, that those bonds can make or break a team. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is the great leaders stay tuned in to their people. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.